and welcome back to the Brothers Book Club Podcast. We're here today with a book review episode. We are back with the little black classics. I paused there as we've been doing so many podcasts this week. We recorded a supplemental book club episode that has now thrown my brain completely out of whack. We're here with another Penguin Little Black Classics review episode. This is number 55 in that review series out of 80, so making good headway. And we're here with Antigone, a Greek tragedy play. Joining me on the other end is Amanda. She's back. She's potting. She's yeah. fierce. I don't know. What are they, do you want any other adjectives no, thrown out there? I and, love it. No. Okay. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> she's, she's bringing brightness and intensity on a night appropriate for that because it's the 4th of July and we've got some firework action in the background. Hopefully, Yay. auditorily speaking, you will not know that, listener. <laughs> uh, but we'll see how good my audio engineering skills are <laughs> and just how loud these fireworks can get. It's, uh, it is technically the third, actually, so but a little behind the scenes. But still, it's not stopping people in any way. Uh, the neighborhoods are popping. The fireworks mm-hmm. are popping. And we're here to talk about a play that, frankly, gets quite popping. And that is, again, Antigone, which is a uh, one of Sophocles' many Greek tragedies that he wrote. Amanda and I were just kind of reminiscing before we started recording. I had to read, I, I think he they considered it a bit of a trilogy. I know he wrote Oedipus Rex and uh, Electra and maybe a few others. But there's these, he writes about this family a lot, this doomed family, which mm-hmm. in this play we'll try and avoid spoilers as we normally do in the reviews. Uh, but th- this was kind of an interesting one to revisit for me because I'd certainly encountered it before and had read that trilogy or whatever that series of plays was. Amanda, what's your uh, Sophocles familiarity here? Um, I read Oedipus Rex in high school, but mm-hmm. um, I somehow avoided Antigone. Um, it was just, I only read um, Oedipus Rex actually. Okay. I also, yeah, I had to read that for AP Lit or Lang, don't remember which, probably probably Lit if I had to guess. But yeah, yeah. we I'd read that in high school as well. Oedipus is a pretty common tale. It's even kind of been co-opted into being a term in psychology, I believe, the Oedipus yeah. complex. Is that not a, that's like that kind of a is. formal term. Yep. Not one that you would like applied to yourself usually. I, I think <laughs> one to avoid uh, unless incest is something that you promote. We'll get into that in here as well. There's some mentions of it because that's that's the famous Oedipus tragedy is that he ends up wedding his mother and has children, including the main character of this story, Antigone. Uh, let's jump in and start our reviews as usual here, Amanda, with a one sentence simile review. Why don't you begin us this week with yours? What's your simile? I said, uh, reading this is like watching a Hallmark soap opera. Yeah, fair. <laughs> so, fair. <laughs> there's there's drama and there's a plot that um, is pretty easy to follow. Um, but the okay. real story is actually just about like what the moral of the story is, is which uh, is like in all Hallmark movies and shows is about like being faithful to your faith. And in this case, like the Greek gods. So, and, and there's like, they attempt to make it not a soap opera by like making it like kind of obscuring it, but you're still like flash flooded with a whole bunch of like morality, which of course Antigone is similar to that. Yeah, definitely. I didn't know that about the, so Hallmark has like a religious funding or something. It's yeah, like a, it's a Christian, Christian organization. Channel. I had no idea. Does that mean the card store is the same? Yes. I always assumed that was the car from the card store. Yeah, they're they're all owned by the same. Yeah, I had no idea. That's kind of like finding out that Hobby Lobby is like a basically a, a Christian business. I guess I'm not yep. really sure how that works, but. Yeah. 
Um, I didn't, I did not know any of that. Okay. And I, the Hallmark movie joke is kind of long running, I think in our, in just popular culture, like people Mm -hmm. like to kind of dunk on Hallmark and make fun of their really corny movies. I didn't even know they had that Christian angle to them though. That's news to me. That's a, it's a great simile then too. (laughs) Mine. I will also borrow something from culture that is a cliche and I'm just going to happily steal it. Sometimes a cliche fits perfectly. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm rocking with. (laughs) I just wrote down that it's like watching a car crash. And if you, it's, I put in slow motion just because of how the speeches and the, this play kind of lay out the impending crises and conflicts and whatever. Mm -hmm. But really, as you know, too, and we'll get to this later, the pacing of this moves really quickly. And so it is actually kind of like watching a car crash in real time. Then it's just a very fast moving disaster where all of the horrible things that occur click into place with some rapidity to it. That really does move. And (laughs) once the things get in motion, there's not a lot of twist. I, it's funny because Greek tragedies are so different than Shakespearean ones, but I, I've kind of, I feel like mentally in college from having to read a lot of Shakespeare, I got used to tragedies having so much more to do. And right. this just cuts out all the fat of it as that expression goes. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it leaves nothing but bare plot and essential monologuing and some back and forth. And then it concludes, it really wraps up quickly. So yeah. yeah and it's, and it's a tragedy in the fullest sense in the Greek you know, capital T sense where, you know, the person's going to die. That's the whole point. The person, whoever it's named after it will die. It's yeah. Shakespearean in that way too. If you, if you, again, that's a spoiler. Sure. But it's a spoiler of the genre. If you didn't know that then you just didn't know the genre. So mm-hmm. I feel comfortable saying that we can leave some of the, I don't know, later details out in the review. Let's talk through connections. We also like to begin the reviews with some kind of relevance because a lot of the classics we cover here on this review series are older texts that have no direct bearing on today's society. Did you find any connections, Amanda, or do you want me to start with mine? Yeah, start with yours. Sure. I think it's going to be another just hashtag me too connection. Mm-hmm. It's, it came off so much more strongly than I remembered from reading it in college. The class I read it for was a political science focused class and so i don't i mean i'm sure we discuss issues of feminism and power and and women's rights but the the toxic masculinity is as our 2020 term would be uh, applied to this is incredibly strong the main character one of the main characters is it creon Creon, Creon, yeah. Creon, okay, I went with Creon as well. You never know with old names. I'm already bad with <laughs> names, let alone ones that are thousands of years old. But yeah, Creon is just this really imposing, brooding misogynist over the entire tale. Oh, um, yeah. And, and his misogyny is so rampantly explicit. He believes you know women to be inferior and weak and that their place should be to not intervene with his power and his affairs. Mm-hmm. And so- and I think there were also those subtle moments, you know, th- these days, granted with some high profile and really horrific exceptions, a lot of sexism is subtle behaviors, things that are learned and coded. And then, I mean, we even have a term for this kind of thing, microaggression. So th- a lot of it happens in, in those more subtle ways that people um, d- wouldn't even be aware of. But this is like really brutal in your face stuff. Uh, I think there was some more subtle aspects to it as well. I think there were a couple exchanges that felt a little more pulled back, but no, this is just in your face, a really brutal misogynist. So I think that was the clearest one I found. I agree with your Me Too movement um, comment, because as I was reading it as well, I was noticing that um, several of the the mentions of like, oh, that's not a woman's place. And and you, Antigone, how dare you like stand up to me and, and 
what do you know? You're just a woman. So I definitely took note of that and thought that it, it could be a really interesting read as well if you come from it from a, a feminist perspective. Definitely. And how about your connection? Similar or different? Uh, mine was uh, a bit broader, I suppose. And so I was thinking of yeah. uh, specifically because I was coming off of the Hallmark simile. I was thinking of the idea of uh, right and wrong, right, so the right. sense of morality, but really the sense of morality in that like you're being challenged in your understanding of something. And then in, in this case, Creon is like very obstinate and adamant that he is the correct one and that nobody can tell him what to do. And so he's not willing yeah. to change his mind, which made me think of what's, you know, happening with like the black lives movement and with, um, and with like the, the mm -hmm. idea of, uh, pan the pandemic and how people are like, Oh, it's just this small thing. Um, we don't need to wear masks and stuff like that. Uh, so it just made me think of how these people have like, how everybody has their own like beliefs, but even if they're confronted with like facts or with new information, not everybody is willing to change their minds. Of course. Um, yeah. And the equivalent and the equivalent to him was when the, the prophecy teller, the seer comes through. Yeah. 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 He didn't get some new kingdom report though. I guess he was getting like personal accounts, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. And, uh, the distinct reading I remember having in college or I think just where the professor uh, wanted to guide us was definitely through notions of, again, it was more poli sci focused right. class, but it was through notions of leadership and governance, mm. uh, who decides who, who should lead whom the people, the leaders, et cetera, you know, should a King have total authority? Should anyone that those kinds of discussions. Yeah. And again, I'm sure the the feminism stuff came up at least a bit. It would be difficult to read this and not have that angle because right. uh, it's so explicit, but no, I think that's a great one, too. And we'll get into more of the moralizing maybe now when we jump into some quotes. Do you want to begin us with a, with a quote today, something you either liked or disliked? This is when we do the specific analysis from different parts of the text. Sure. Um, so I, I found, obviously, there's so many bits of yeah. um, morals uh, scattered throughout, all basically saying that, you know, you should continue to have faith in uh, the Greek gods and that you should not question their authority and that your authority as a human is nothing compared to the authority of the gods. Yeah. Um, so on my page 38, it says, um, to err from the right path is common to mankind, but having erred, that mortal is no more lossal, which means loser or fool who medicines the ill, uh, wherein he fell and stands not obstinate. So essentially what it's saying is um, change your mind, right? When you get new information, or if you know that you're wrong, don't just sit there and be like, well, I, I already made the decision, so I'm not going to change yeah. my mind, right? Out of pride or whatever it is that's making you not change. But you need to be more flexible and think about the consequences of your actions, um, so anyway, there's a lot of moralizing in this play, as I mentioned before, and it does sometimes to me seem a bit preachy. <laughs> yeah, um, it's definitely which, clear. I think yeah. that's part of it, too. And that's yeah, it's interesting because rhetorically, this is an odd tangent, but let's ride it just for a second. Yeah. I feel like rhetorically in, in maybe even our modern society, aren't preachers considered like some of the best rhetoricians though? Like yeah. in terms of just like, so it's, I, I agree. I, when I say preachy about a text, I also mean it critically uh, in mm -hmm. terms of, I usually don't like that, but 
I don't know. I sometimes it's preachiness does work as long as it is, and I couldn't because I agree with you. It's so clear and it, it moralizes quite obviously. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure why it didn't bother me though. Uh, maybe it should have. I think it bothered me because of how often, like it was just. I felt like yeah, every character except for Creon mentioned that he is like defying the gods and that it's like and and everybody says like each person each character and and the chorus as well right the chorus continuously like moralized about it and and brought up the greek gods and it it was just like it it was just so interwoven with like everything that i was just kind of like okay i get it like but i also know that it's a greek tragedy and it's meant to moralize and it's meant to kind of like get the audience to um obey the gods and stuff like that that was like the whole purpose of a greek tragedy so i was like i was struggling with myself because i knew that this is the actual purpose of a greek tragedy but at the same time coming from like a a modern reader's perspective i was just like oh my gosh i get it okay (laughs) yeah no we uh we certainly demand out of our storytelling nowadays, we demand far less obvious, you know, plotting along. And we don't, mm-hmm. we don't expect to be pricked or poked by theme in such a blatant way, which yeah. is because we don't use our storytelling for as explicit lesson teaching as right. they would have in this, in this case or in these terms, in this format, I guess. And there's certainly nothing wrong with just coming away from a format saying, that format does not work for me. I, right. There's nothing. I mean, it's that's just like, you know, I don't like a genre or format. I think that's perfectly valid. Um, and I think maybe it was just because I had to read a lot of these, even starting, I guess, back in high school, which I hadn't thought about, that maybe once you become, it's one of those things too, once you become accustomed to a form, you become more tolerant. And, you know, when you immerse yourself in it, the language becomes more familiar, the rhythms become more familiar, and you can kind of overlook the pretty clear faults. I mean, because mm-hmm. you're right. I, the chorus here, even I was skimming some of that. That's the chorus really does give some of the detailed stuff about the actual gods and goddesses, which I think a lot of readers might find interesting because you know the names. It's like, oh, right. they, they're talking about Zeus and okay, I know who Zeus is. What's up with Zeus or, or Persephone or some of the other big ones, uh, Apollo or whatever. But no, I completely agree in that. I, I will also comment quickly before I read my first quote. Um, it's very obvious to me that your translation is extremely old and mine is extremely modern, by the way. I oh. could tell I could tell immediately when you just by reading over a couple of your quotes or skimming them mm-hmm. that mine mine is like radically more modernized than your translated text is. Ooh. Did you have the thee and thou's? in yours oh, no definitely not oh not at all. man maybe Even, i would have liked it better if i had read possibly it, it definitely <laughs> makes things smoother and it so uh, for better or worse in this case i think for better because it makes maybe the things that are being obvious make them feel like uh, let me actually start with this one then because one of the things i loved about it was the i found the exchanges between characters very snappy with a lot of wit and just mm-hmm. very enjoyable to read the kind of tete-a-tetes that he had with his son and with Antigone especially those mm-hmm. I thought were very illuminating and they really did feel like I mean it felt like I guess I'm trying to think of it I was gonna say rap battle but do, people don't even do rap <laughs> battles anymore that's not even a thing that's like a cultural <laughs> uh, touchstone from another time I guess but it, it just felt like yeah some kind of 
I don't know, stand up comedy, like roast each other kind of battle or something. Uh-huh. Anyway, this is one from his exchange when, with his son. I'm just going to read their quotes. I'm not going to say the names because you'll kind of get the flow of it, hopefully. But his son begins by saying, the whole city of Thebes denies it to a man. And is Thebes about to tell me how to rule? Now you see who's talking like a child. That's the son again. Am I to rule this land for others or myself? It's no city at all owned by one man alone. What? The city is the king's. That's the law. What a splendid king you'd make of a desert island, you and you alone. I think it's, you don't get a lot of their relationship. You know what he, Creon, expects of his son, which is total obedience and to carry out his legacy and all of that. But I think, yeah, even in that exchange, there's at least two to three different intriguing ideas about who should command whom, whether the law should be from a person or from an institution or from a group or just from a general will um and there's and there's even like i like the the little petulant not petulant but the just a little bit of the desert island which just feels like kind of a classic roast or something just feels Mm -hmm. like him teasing his father out and just kind of i don't know uh, harsher than a tease but i think you get the gist yeah and yeah i felt like that exchange showed a lot of kind of just timeless father son relationship type debate but it also does hinge on bigger kind of philosophical issues of governance, which I think it did both well. Now, is the most, again, is it the most touching uh, relationship dynamic or something from what we'd expect as modern readers? I don't know. I mean, the answer is obviously no. Also, it's a play, so you don't get any, you'll never get internal stuff except in a monologue. So it's not like we're, we have access to that kind of psychology. I think that's the other thing too about going into a play that I don't need to tell you this to you. I need to just mention to the listeners, I guess, but in plays, everything will be heightened because there's no internals. So you just, everything has to be a, a lot louder, I guess, just generally when characters interact, things like that have to be more obvious. Mm-hmm. And I guess um, some plays don't play it up as much. I think of like Death of a Salesman is a play I really love. And that one avoids kind of the the more histrionic elements and even has some symbols and things in it. Mm-hmm. And this one is more heightened. But anyway, I like their back and forth. I'm not sure if any of that stuck out to you. It did actually. What I did like about Antigone is um, that I did get a really good sense of who Creon is um, as a yeah. person through the dialogue, just through dialogue and his relationship yeah. with his son. Like at the beginning, when he first comes in, the son's like, of course, I've always got your back, man. You're my dad. And there's no honor um, with you. That doesn't affect with me, blah, blah, blah. And then he's like, but <laughs> well, right, let me right. just say, that's my so, wife. Yeah. <laughs> or my bride or yeah. Yeah, engaged or whatever yeah, their term would she's be. She's my fiance. Like, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I thought it, the dialogue I thought was really well done in, in that it does a good job with revealing a lot about the characters and the motivations of the characters. Yeah. And, right. and it just really highlighted how stubborn and how domineering Creon is. Definitely. Yeah. Do you want me to throw in my other crayon quote then? Because I pulled one more that he spoke. This is all his dialogue here. Uh, He says very early in the play, in a really strong bit of foreshadowing and irony, he says, no, believe me, the the stiffest stubborn wills fall the hardest. The toughest iron tempered strong in the white hot fire. You'll see it crack and shatter first of all. And I've known spirited horses you can break with a light bit. Proud, rebellious horses. There's no room for pride, not in a slave, not with the Lord and master standing by, which you know, putting positioning himself as a slave master is obviously extremely tough stuff. Yeah. Though at the time, it probably would have been considered a much more like, you know, impressive dominating position, I guess. And mm-hmm. I believe that 
the Greeks were commonly collecting, you know, defeated opponents in battle as slaves and that kind of thing. Yeah. Anyway, he's also inherently there and they're implicitly comparing Antigone to a slave position, another kind of subtle dig at her status as a woman. I think he basically exclusively dismisses her because she's a woman. I, I can't think of, I mean, I'm and she breaks his law or his code, but yeah. it's, it's the woman aspect that offends him most, I think. So it's another harsh comparison. Also, I have to mention this because we just were coming off of the Socrates podcast not long ago. I don't remember when that was a couple weeks ago, maybe now, yeah, but re- weeks, recently yeah. to me anyway. And what is up with the the Greeks love horse analogies? I feel like Socrates <laughs> used a couple. <laughs> he did. He really did. <laughs> and I mean, granted, if, at the time it would have been, you know, it's like their beast of burden, the most impressive and important creature they probably housed or kept and so i guess i get it it's a dominant part of their of their life and their power livelihood or whatever anyway it's just worth pointing out that i have no insight there at all no deep insight they just they seem fascinated with like the mechanics and lives of horses yeah yeah but i thought yeah overall i think that quote uh, you could pick many that summarize his position in the story. Mm-hmm. That one I thought showed kind of his brutal character and uh, the horse thing gets, gets some play for me. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great one. Good points about him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What about any other quotes that stood out to you? I know I've got one more, but let's hear, let's hear another yeah. one from you. Let's um, hear so- some old English language. That's what I want. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do have to say that like reading your quotes versus my quotes, um, I would have, preferred reading yours i i actually have the dover edition okay um, which i guess is kind of a rival actually of of penguin right like interesting classics and in the publishing world i I suppose yeah yeah. um so yeah they've got the the old like ye and stuff you'll hear it in just oh and mine is mine's not that old or mine's not that new but this is the one that i've read in college all time it's by fagels do you remember fagels Ah. He he famously translated many of these plays. I think all of the plays I own are translated by Fagels. Oh, I don't. And know he translated it in the eighties. So we're not talking we're not talking hyper modern or something, but definitely more modern than the whatever you're throwing out. The the these thous those that that is certainly yeah. an older translation than mine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's yeah. So. um Let's see. I will give you this quote. Um, mm-hmm. It's between uh, Creon and the seer. And I'm, I'm going to butcher the seer's name, but it's That's the... Okay. What's his name? The, 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 we start the, with a T. Was it that yeah. one? Yeah. Just call him the seer uh, or whatever. <laughs> 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 or pronounce yes. it as you will. I'm not going to offend me. Tiresias. Tire. Sure. Tiresias. <laughs> anyway. Sounds uh, great. <laughs> the seer. So, um, old man, ye all, like archers at a mark, are loosing shafts at me. And that's Creon talking about how everybody's like criticizing him. Yeah. And then the seer's uh, response is like, well, that's because you're being stupid. And these are the things that are going to happen to you. And then he says, such bolts in wrath, since thou darest anger me, I loosen at thy bosom, archer-like, sure aimed, whose burning smart thou shalt not shun. So Mm -hmm. what I really liked about that is, and and we see this actually uh, throughout the play, is is the, the repeating motifs and symbols and and the way that the characters kind of respond to another person's analogy or another person's right. metaphor by using that same thing against them um, and I thought that was just really well done so I was 
I will say that I, I don't remember much about like Oedipus Rex's um, style and stuff like that. What, what it was like reading yeah. that. I just remember the storyline. Um, but w- I was coming into this expecting not as much because of how short it is. I was not expecting as much of the, um, the, the, the play on different metaphors and, and symbols that he used throughout. So I was, I was really pleased to see and that I, there was some literary elements that I could really, really chew on. Well, definitely. And the, and I think at least again, in my translation, there's a, there are a good number of puns and a yeah. lot of the back and forth is I believe played up to be humorous, mm-hmm. at least from the, from the reading I got the final quote I have, I think does inject, or at least to me injected some humor into it, how much it was intended. It's hard to say, but there, there's a, a, some leadership in the chorus that follows Crayon around throughout the entire play. And there's just a quote from them really quickly I thought was funny because they go, they basically just go back and forth and d- just will take whoever side is the winning side currently. Like yeah. <laughs> when, when the sun comes in, they say like, oh, he's, he's speaking sense. And then when the seer comes in, they're like, oh, you should really listen to the seer. But then when they leave, they're like, eh, Crayon, just do what you will. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. actually, I don't even need to read the quote. That's basically what it says. I mean, yeah. they on one page, they say, uh, you say you speak with a lot of sense. You haven't been robbed of your wits, but then they say when his son comes in, you both are talking sense. So mm-hmm. it, it it they just waffle, and I think there's there's some commentary in there about just a cowardly kind of aristocracy and leadership yeah. and how the you know there's a certain class of person who just doesn't want the winds to change. They don't yeah. really care how they go. They just want to continue to coast, as it were. And I thought that was just injected a little bit of humor in a play that's quite dire and has almost no, I mean, unless you're interpreting some of the back and forth again with Creon and the other younger characters to be a bit humorous, which, you know, the Desert Island thing is kind of funny. But yeah, yeah, no, I think that was the only part that I kind of outright laughed at. Yeah. And the chorus too is is supposed to represent the senators as well. Yeah. So right. it's definitely uh, poking fun, I think, at. At the government. Definitely. The way the government yeah. is run, yeah. Any final quotes you want to run through before we jump into the literary corner? Um, well, I will say because the, the literary corner is about mm-hmm. um, the Greek chorus, um, yep. what I noticed with the chorus as well um, as just kind of like waffling is that it also, that's where we get all of the kind of like the dumping of just the lore and stuff like that. Yeah, so it's a there's a way to put it. Yeah, there's, so there's a lot of like references to locations and history and all that stuff. Um, and I, I won't even bother really reading the the quote necessarily, but there's mm-hmm. sometimes some of the stuff I was just like, if I didn't have the footnotes, I would have been like, what am I even reading? <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. there's some things that like, especially with the locations, um, yeah. just like, is that a person? Is that a place? Like, what is that supposed to be? And I'm not, I, I know the Greek gods, the major gods, but they also mentioned some of the demigods and stuff. And I'm like, wait, what? So Definitely. Um, if I didn't have, the, I don't know if your version has the footnotes. No. But- and it needed few of them. But mm-hmm. again, my knowledge of this stuff is, is rather up to date. I think compared to just any, you know, pick a reader off the street. I, because I had to teach it a little bit when I was teaching middle school. And uh- so my, my base level knowledge is probably higher than the standard person for good reason. I, I'm not saying, yeah. yeah, it's not. It's not some rite of citizenship. I believe that you have to know that your Greek mythology or whatever. That's <laughs> yeah. very far from the truth for me. But anyway, yeah. So I think my operating level of knowledge on that is just a little above average. Oh, nice. Yeah, because I was just I was lost at some points and and had sure. to look at the footnotes just to to make sense of what I was reading. 
Of course. I think the advice we get, we've given on previous podcasts will hold up forever, which is if you're buying something even over, I don't know what my year cutoff would be, probably even over 100 years old, you should probably buy an annotated version if one exists. Why wouldn't mm-hmm. you? Like, why take the risk? And culture shifts so profoundly in that amount of time that who knows what things were commonplace in the time they wrote it and who knows what references you'll get or not get. It just yeah. seems really foolhardy to me to not get an annotated version if it's available. If it's not, you know, don't, don't be freaked out or something. But yeah, always, always offer that in my mind. Let's jump to the literary corner then. This is the briefly educational segment where we attempt to teach you, the listener, something about literature. Today we're covering the Greek chorus, which I'll run through the definition, but I'm going to leave the analysis to you, I think, Amanda. Originally, and this is from the, as usual, the Penguin Literary Dictionary. Originally, the Greek chorus was a group of performers at a religious festival, especially at fertility rites, but eventually it became an essential and integral part of Greek tragic drama. And in Sophocles, which the dictionary actually calls out specifically, it served as a commentator on the action, though in other Greek tragedies, it it provided or could provide a lyric element or even just a participation in the action. This one kind of participates in the action, though, like the leaders Mm -hmm. step out of the chorus, I think. And I I guess they don't intervene too much, but they give Creon some confidence at times. So they kind of play it up that way. And then uh, they mention just a ton of authors who have deployed them uh, from Shakespeare to Arthur Miller to like other playwrights like George Eliot or Tennessee Williams. They mentioned William Faulkner as a novelist who used the uh, kind of chorus like element a lot. So it's definitely crept into other forms of writing. It's not just stayed to tragedies or even just plays. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, anyway, I, I've, I have my thoughts on the course in this one. What did you, you did you find it mostly confounding then kind of like just lore dumpy? It was lore dumpy and, the part in in the definition that says that it it provides a lyrical element i think that the way that sophocles wrote antigone at least in in my version it was very sing-songy in a lot of ways anyway for me like it looks like poetry to me it was it reminded me a lot of of a shakespearean play in the format actually just like not as long as a shakespearean play um but yeah, it was lore dumpy, and the parts that I did enjoy uh, with the chorus were I, I didn't really care as much about like their commentary and stuff on on what was happening, just because I was like, okay, well, you know, I already understand what's happening, and like the foreshadowing and stuff was unnecessary because if you're familiar with how a Greek tragedy is it's like you already know kind of what the outcome is going to be regardless. Right. Right. With, Um, yeah. With other, you know, there are certain characters who you, whose fates you won't know until they happen. But yeah, again, the titular character is meant to die. That that is literally the point. Yeah. Well, and then like when, when the seer comes in, it, you know, what's going to happen to Creon's Mm -hmm. family specifically his son. So you kind of already know all that. You don't need the chorus to tell you that and to kind of like foreshadow that. And the other part Mm -hmm. of the chorus was like that I did like was uh, when they acted as like the Senate and they actually Mm -hmm. interacted with Creon. So that's more interesting. I understood. I agree. And the other, I was just looking through some quotes while you were um, covering that. And I think, yeah, there it's so much of it is history and and cultural context is what they provide. And other than that, they do, they do just kind of these bland platitudes that I think just reflect generally at that time, like antiquity, Greek culture, because they say things like, well, they're comparing this child of Zeus, but then they say the power of fate is a wonder, dark, terrible wonder, neither wealth nor armies, towered walls, nor ships, black hulls lashed by the salt can save, save us from that force, which 
that's about as generic a, an idea for a theme as you can have. Like fate mm-hmm. takes its course, you know, fate, you can't stop fate. You know, if you believe yeah. in the concept of fate, then that's the most generic thing you could ever say. Because of course, I mean, as soon as you believe in that, then that's again, such a, it's like a, you're almost defining the term in the statement, so to speak. So at any rate, I think it, yeah, I did skim the course a lot of the times when they interjected, but yeah, like Zeus caught my attention. So occasionally I slowed down and, or, you know, they mentioned, even on this page, they're mentioning, um, Athena, they mentioned Ares. So there are enough God and goddess references to maybe make the history interesting, but I agree. It was not the best part of the play. Yeah. I really struggled to, to maintain my focus. Yeah. Um, sometimes yeah. when I was reading the chorus stuff, I'd have to like put down the book and be like, okay, centered. And then pick it back up. <laughs> Completely. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah. And had it been written in a, in a more dense or slightly older fashion, I would probably be on board with you completely. <laughs> Let's jump into then before we close out our reviews, the Russell French in memoriam. What's good about it segment. This is where we give one compliment to what we read. I don't mind starting. Cause I, I feel like I've said yeah. a few complimentary things. Um, I just enjoyed the character work. I thought Creon was again, so well and clearly drawn maybe to the point of too well outlined. I think that's, would be a fair thing to say that Mm -hmm. he lacks a bit of subtlety. But then again, I feel like if you really want to close read his turn at the end, after Mm -hmm. the tragedy befalls him, you could look back over and analyze some things. And I think he makes for at least a slightly interesting work. And then Antigone is pretty fascinating. Her sister who shows up only briefly. I remember doing some thinking about that at the time, wondering what the contrast was meant to show and how they're kind of these opposites and they, they feel differently. But mm-hmm. anyway, I just thought, yeah, most of the conflicts that came through but when these characters would clash, and I, as I highlighted, a lot of the dialogue when they're together just felt sharp and kind of poignant to me. So I think the characters really held up. Yeah, I, I agree. Actually, that was something that I really enjoyed, even though that's not what I um, really Mm-hmm. chose to talk about but yeah i i really like that and to your point about um the sister is is mimi is mine is any anyway antigone's sister as, yeah as mine is fine i think is mine okay cool um i was thinking about that too and what i almost put for the literary corner was foil um sure because yeah, she's like yeah. the opposite of antigone and i think it's meant to show the two the two ideas behind um creon's um pronouncement not to bury the right. guy so it's like you have the people who think that it's an affront to the gods and then you have the other people who are like well it doesn't matter because it's the law so i think it's meant to show those two yeah and I remember city. just even you saying that brought, brought back to me a and not tons of clarity. I don't remember if this is some exact debate that was had in a class years ago or whatever. But something we didn't talk about at all thematically is is his idea even that wrong? I, it seems fine to me. It's like w- <laughs> the person tried to kill you t- technically. Like he tried to come and kill us all. Why would we? W- why should we waste so much time honoring this person who? Mm-hmm betrayed us and then t- attempted to murder us all. I Anyway, so I think there are real notions of like revenge and justice in this uh, play that I think could could stir some debate. I, again, we're not looking at the uh, deepest ever and most psychologically thrilling document of that conflict or something. But right. even now that I think back on it, I remember that at the beginning thinking that her sister seemed quite reasonable and, you know, let's just let it be for now. 
our family is already in a tremendous wreck and is basically a turmoil of a family. Like, why are we, why are we pressing this issue? Can't the two of us just chill? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, To put it generously. So no, even, yeah, we didn't talk about that thematically or as an idea in the text, but yeah, that stirred something back in me. Yeah. Uh, And then, so you generally thought the easy read made it a positive thing. Yeah. It's a, it was despite my, the language in mine being, uh, yeah, older, yeah. it was still a really fast read for me. The the only parts hanging me up being the the chorus parts. Right. Um, but the plot was really easy to follow. It the action just like it was bam 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 bam. There was no real like lull in what was happening. So um, it it was it was like Sinbad, right? In the in the plot okay. in yeah. the plot flow. Um, but unlike Sinbad, in that I think it was better written. Yeah, fair, fair. <laughs> Which is fascinating too. Maybe just more generously translated or something, yeah. or it just could be you know the writing you like more. Yeah. Let's move into our official ratings. Then I'll go first because again, I think mine is pretty clear and quick. It's a three for me. We I haven't had an outright three in a long time. I appreciated a couple things about it. Firstly, I guess I'll just say this. I didn't realize this would be part of the review. Get the Fagel's translation, I guess, if you have any interest in Greek plays or tragedies or this one. It seemed just from our quotes again that mine was infinitely updated in a in a modern kind of reading way. And Mm so that seems like that contributed to my enjoyment. But the characters really popped. I thought, again, the, the issues presented and the themes they're in. I, here's, I guess, what I'll say in their defense is certainly they are clear, but there's enough of them at play to, I think, tangle in each other, if that makes sense. So it's, I think, you know, clearly, for example, what Creon thinks of like justice or, or what a law should mean or something. Right. But like, there's enough of a tangle there with Antigone, for example, like, is she acting just out of regret or guilt or does she actually believe in the gods? Even I think that could be a question to, if you want to analyze her character and motivations, there's some interest there. And I think enough of these ideas get tangled up together to make it interesting, but no, it's completely moralizing. There's no walking away from that. That's just, that's just the way this text is going to be. Mm -hmm. And I think if you know that what a Greek tragedy entails going in, then yeah, I think it, it makes her a pretty light, intriguing read with, yeah, some fast drama and characters that are just like wildly out of control and basically screaming the whole. Gra- I feel like every line I read from Creon was basically him just screaming. I could see the vein, <laughs> Yelling at the vein yeah. popping in his forehead, like as he spoke almost every line. And so, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I just I don't know. And maybe it's again. I feel like I'm generous when I read plays, which is by the way not often at all, very rarely, um, mm-hmm. because you can just go see them or watch a movie now. But. I, I feel like I'm a bit generous or I allow for a bit more of heightened absurdity in the dialogue, I suppose, just because that's all you have. You know, you mm-hmm. have maybe a little bit of set and that's it. And then the way it's acted. So, yeah. Anyway, I think it's a strong three for me. How about for you, Amanda? Um, I gave it a two. Mm-hmm. Um I agree with all the the positives that you have to say about it. I think that there's um, great characterization. I think that the plot was really fast moving and it was interesting. Um, but the moralizing really got to me and yeah, yeah. I, the, the constant references to um, the Greek history and Greek locations and stuff like that. It was, it was a bit much for me. Um, yeah. And but the good thing though, is that it is a super short play. Um, so if it's almost like, if you want to start reading um, 
a play, this is a good introduction to those old styles. Even if you want to like kind of dip your toe into like a Shakespearean style play, this is like a good precursor and a good introduction to how some of his writings um, actually uh, it's very similar in a lot of ways. He's, he's a bit more verbose, I, I believe and yeah, and has yeah. a lot more to, to, to write, but this is, he's very obviously Shakespeare's plays and, and in that time period too, Ben Johnson and so on, um, their plays very much were um, affected by their understanding of the Greek tragedies and, and other Greek plays and stuff. So I think that this is a good introduction to that style. Yeah. I think, Man, it's fascinating. I know we won't get into any Shakespeare in these Penguin classic reviews because he's not in there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's calling anything Shakespearean is just so loaded. Is the but I yeah. completely agree. This does feel like a light version of that, so to speak. Not as dense, not as playful, and not as just. Sometimes when you go back and read Shakespeare, you just think this is really absurd. The yeah. amount of things that this person is putting into a you know a page of this text. I mean, it's which I, I think can lead to appreciation or exhaustion and equal measure is, is kind of valid. But mm-hmm. at any rate, no, I agree. It, it does feel like a lighter version. And yeah, just the first scene just cl- so clearly sets up almost everything you need to know about the situation and it makes it dramatic. And there is a ton of argumentation already and they're fighting. And yeah, it just, and as I say these things out loud, it's like, I'm describing a fucking Hallmark movie, I guess. I think <laughs> that really is what it is. It's just, they're coming out right away with the, with the fists. And so, yeah, no, I guess I unashamedly like that about it. It was interesting. Yeah. And I think it had enough of the literary to, to keep things fresh. And there's always the chorus if you really want to get into it. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, rather a positive review, though. You know, we kind of like Sinbad too. We've had some good stuff in here lately. I think. You know, now that I think on it, do I give I give Socrates a three as well? Didn't I? Or Socrates defense Plato. Yeah, I think I did. Okay, I've been. I'm, and this is. The, I think that's just my old college training brain kicking in, man. I, <laughs> I think that's just like I was trained to read things from that group so much, and I read so much of it that revisiting it just feels nice like putting on an old comfortable sweater or something like it just does not bother the the ticks and the awkward annoyances of reading those things just does not bug me as much as a uh, maybe it should i, I kind of like that analogy there <laughs> yeah and i think it reminds me of your like your penchant for the some of the british poetry we've read or some of the victorian area and like pre-victorian stuff yeah. i think it's yeah i mean that if you, because you studied that so much that there's just some it unlocks something in your brain that yeah you've been trained on so we've got our own biases here on the pod we do um, next week <laughs> I truly have not looked ahead but I believe it's like a postmodern Japanese thing uh, the life of a stupid man I believe yep. is the name of it so it's got some nonfiction coming up um, from Japan which is nice to jump finally get to jump the continent for a while that'll be cool I look forward to reading that hopefully it's not as pessimistic as it sounds though I imagine <laughs> it will be and I actually think I read this one I think it is uh, so hopefully you'll join us for that but until then we will see you between the classics 